All right, I think we are we are on. So um, good morning, good afternoon, wherever you may be, everyone. Uh, my name is Youssef Scully. I'm the lead internet analyst at Truist Securities, and welcome to um, Truist Securities Tech Internet and Services Conference of 2021. It is a pleasure to have with us this morning Andrew McDonald, SVP of Mobility and Business Operations, and Balaji Krishnamurti, uh, Head of Investor Relations. So um, before we begin, let me just um, get going with the, uh, with the following disclaimer. Um, so this call is arranged by Truist Securities, research for use by institutional investors and issuer clients as defined by FINRA. If you are not an institutional investor or issuer, please disconnect at this time. For required disclosures, please see our website at Truist Securities or our equity research library. So with that out of the way, uh, Andrew, welcome. And good morning. Thank you. Good morning. Great to be here. Awesome. So maybe let's start at a very high level. Um, you've been at Uber for almost nine years now in different leadership capacity. Maybe you can speak to how um, the firm has evolved, at least in the last couple of years. And I'm particularly interested in your thoughts around, you know, changes to operational focus, velocity of products, innovation, um, relationship with regulators, if you want to throw that in, that, that in there as well, since it's, it's, it's an important topic. Let's start there. Sure. So, so yes, I, I'm, I'm very fortunate to have been with, with Uber now close to nine years. Um, obviously, lots of change in that time. We had around 50 employees when I joined, and we're now 20,000 plus. And uh, when I joined as GM of our Toronto business, if we were doing three concurrent trips, it was, a, it was a big deal. So we're now doing billions a year. So the, lot, lots of changes and with our company and culture and all that stuff too. Um, you know, we, we've gone from, as I said, small luxury focused, you know, as people don't recall, Uber started out as a limousine service. It was priced 20 to 50% higher than taxis. And that was considered, you know, the innovation at the start. Um, and then we rolled out peer-to-peer uh, -peer ride sharing and that really blew up and I think sort of changed the trajectory of the company and now you know we, every year we're rolling out many new products new vehicle types two-wheelers bikes and scooters buses public transit integrations car rentals all sorts of different mobility options so that and that's just on the mobility side never mind delivery um, you know I think a lot of the things from those early days remains true though uh, you mentioned operational focus I think you know, core uh, nitty gritty operators is still the DNA of folks on my team. Marketplace management continues to be, uh, you know, what I view as a fundamental and foundational advantage for Uber. Um, relative efficiency is a focus of ours. This is why we're so focused on maintaining category leadership in all our biggest markets around the world, because we think that gives you scale, which then compounds um, and we continue to sort of be at this intersection of tech and operations, which I, you know, I think is our superpower. That's, that's very hard to do, right? When we're not a traditional tech company, we operate in the physical world every single day and that's messy. The physical world is messy. And I think we're good at that messiness. Um, you know, in terms of what's changed the last few years, we've gotten much more from an ops perspective, we've gotten much more focused on cost management. Um, and I think that's, you know, this is about ripping out non-strategic costs. So anything that doesn't add value to the rider or driver, taking that out, driving basis points off a very large base business. 
And I think that's, you know, that's not only great because it'll drive bottom line improvements for Uber. It also lets us be the most efficient operator, which means we can have lower prices and drivers can earn more and we can make the most money. So that that's sort of marketplace 101. And, and that continues to be at the core of what we do. And then, as you say, we are in a regulated space. This has not always been a strength of Uber's. Um, at least as far as having a good reputation in this regard. And we've evolved a ton though. But, you know, again, 2013, the question was, should ride sharing even exist? And today we're regulated everywhere we operate. This is a business model that's been validated and is evolving. And of course, there's always going to be questions, but I think we've really refined our approach. And, you know, the win that drivers got, because it was a win for drivers on Prop 22 in California last year is a great example of how we've evolved and changed. And that's not a victory we could have, had three or four years ago, the drivers would have had three or four years ago. So that that probably gives you some sense of, of how we've changed. No, that's a great setup. Um, so maybe we can we can uh, dig a little deeper into uh, the the day to day operations. So um, last just last week, your your main competitor in the U.S. came out basically announced that they're seeing better than expected demand for their ride share business through the end of February. They're expecting that to continue into March as the country gradually reopens. Can you just provide some color to the extent you can on what you're seeing so far in the US and, and maybe trends in ge geos within the US like Florida, like Texas that, 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 that have reopened uh, recently, notwithstanding the huge weather issue that they had in Texas? Yeah, sort of uncharacteristic weather issue. We've seen lots of those over the years. Um, Sure. So, I mean, some folks on this call, Yusuf, you may have seen yesterday, our CFO spoke at another conference and, you know, his message was sort of loud and clear that we're seeing very similar positive trends and, and really not just in the U.S., but globally. Um, we, you know, since earnings, it's been pretty good momentum, consistent week on week growth. Um, and, you know, in February, as you say, we had the weather disruption in the south, which, you know, does impact our business. Things were even more locked down there. But our our month on month from January to February was roughly flat, despite fewer days and the the weather interruptions. And delivery grew, you know, 150% year over year in Feb, uh, including M and A. So, you know, consistency on mobility, but continued momentum on on delivery. Um, as you say, our competitor uh, had some disclosures about 4% month on month growth. Uh, for average daily rides, I believe is what they, they gave out in February. Um, we saw a very similar trend and actually in terms of gross bookings, a much better trend at 15% month over month. Um, and so we feel really good about that momentum and confirms momentum in the sector overall and Uber's momentum in particular. Um, and that was for our, that's for our US and Canada business. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, as we've entered March, we've seen further acceleration in both mobility and delivery. Uh, total company gross bookings are up nearly 10% year over year in the last week. Uh, deliveries now exceeding a $50 billion run rate up from 44 in January, still growing 150% a year. Uh, Mobility is a $27 billion run rate compared to 24 we reported for January um, with gross bookings down just 43% year over year in the last week. So I feel really, really good both about mobility emerging but also delivery momentum continuing. Um, if you look super recently, you know, last week, our mobility business in North America and EMEA um, had a few days of below 50% year over year declines. These were the regions that were sort of disproportionately down uh, if you look back a few months. Um, so these markets starting to emerge is a big deal for us. 
And, you know, we're, this is where you're seeing, you know, acceleration in vaccines and market reopenings, you know, in the US, UK, et cetera, making progress. So that's great. And then you asked about specific cities, you know, Miami, 75% recovered to pre-COVID. Um, Atlanta and New York City are 60% recovered. Uh, the West Coast continues to lag a bit, but LA, we've started to see a bit of momentum more recently. And then in, in Europe, France is, is recovered to about 60% last week. So all in all, I think really positive momentum stories, long way to go, but um, we think it's a one-way direction from here. All right, that's, um, that's super helpful. How, how about markets like, I don't know, Australia, New Zealand, Singapore, where um, uh, COVID seems to have been basically put in the rear view mirror. Um, are, are there any markets where you're almost flat to pre-COVID levels? Um, or is that still kind of, uh, is that still on the come? Yeah, there definitely are. Um, you know, historically, we've talked about some of our markets in Asia, Hong Kong and Taiwan, uh, being the two that at various points over the last year have hit pre-COVID levels. Um, but even Brazil and Australia, where, as you say, I mean, Brazil is still having a really rough go of it with COVID, but the, the markets remain a bit more open than other places. So even Brazil, so today, you know, Brazil, Australia, Hong Kong, Taiwan, all very large markets for us are more than 80% recovered to pre-COVID. Um, so that's, you know, we're, we're getting close in a bunch of those places. Um, Hong Kong and Taiwan are actually showing year-over-year growth in February um, with both markets up double digits versus February 2019. So again, really positive strength in Asia. Australia was down 10% year over year last week. Um, and basically outside of airport use cases, say in a city like Sydney, um, we're basically fully recovered. So air airport use cases remain down, probably not surprisingly to folks on this call, but uh, otherwise in a place like Australia, pretty much full recovery. So I think really good overall stories across many markets and uh, we expect others to get there. All right, well, congrats on that. That's pretty impressive to have. Hong Kong. It's been, it's been a long journey. It has been. And you weren't alone, so you're in good company. So as, as you look past COVID, so let's put COVID in the rear mirror and start looking at the shape of, 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 the re, of, of recovery, hopefully in the second half and into next year. Um, one of the things that we often hear is maybe the pandemic has created some structural challenges for not only your business, but for you know, ride sharing in general. Um, and they, for instance, would give an example of, you know, airport rides that are not likely to come back uh, for, for a while, right? I mean, we're, on, we're doing this over Zoom, right? Um, and it's really practical. So the assumption is maybe, you know, we'll never go back to 100% of what we used to do, have to hop on the plane, do all these, these things. Can you maybe speak to, you know, maybe areas where you feel there is some uh, potential uh, structural change, if at all, and then inversely, you know, um, areas where there may actually be an opportunity for you. So for instance, um, I think there were some stats around how you guys have been, you know, and, and your competitor as well, both of you guys have been outperforming in terms of public transportation and, you know, getting new cohorts that would not have necessarily come to the platform. Maybe can you speak to the stickiness of those new cohorts to the extent you can? Sure. So, so 
a lot in that question. Um, yeah, sorry. No, no, it's, it's, I think it's, it's exactly the right question. And it's obviously one we're thinking about. So I think there are puts and takes in both directions, but we will net out stronger as both as a company and as a mobility business. So, you know, at the company level, you know, our strong feeling is this has permanently expanded the TAM for the delivery business and that there's no going back to where we were pre-pandemic, even as people start moving again. Um, there's just so many people that have come into the category um, that are now using our delivery services, not just food delivery, grocery, alcohol, convenience, all the other things um, that, that we service. So that market, we feel really good, permanent expansion of that category and Uber's really well positioned there, number one, number two player in you know, many or most markets around the world. Um, and then on the mobility side, I think you're right that we, we have some, you know, on travel, it sort of remains to be seen what the new normal is. Um, my sense and our sense, and when we look at what you're hearing from travel providers, booking companies, et cetera, is there's a lot of pent up demands on the personal travel side of things, which is a big part of our business still. Um, you know, the people are going to get out there as soon as they can. They're going to book vacations. They're, yeah. You know, they're going to book multiple vacations. Maybe they're able to travel more because a little bit more flexibility in where they work. So I think there's a ton of upside on personal travel and that's probably gonna last for six, 12, 18, 24 months. You know, there's all kinds of data around savings rates and stuff like that that people will have to spend on, on travel. So personal travel feel quite good about. Business travel, it's a bit of a TBD, right? I, I think that, yes, we are doing this conference on Zoom, but as you and I talked about before we jumped into the audience, it's not as good. Right. It would be, it, there's, there's an energy that's lost. There's, um, you know, attendance may be higher, but I think a lot of folks would still prefer to be in person. Um, so, so I think business travel demand will still be there. How much remains to be seen. And definitely some meetings obviously will, will be, you know, moved to zoom and some conferences and stuff like that. I think the flip side is as people are more distributed and companies are more distributed, there may be an opportunity for people to travel more to get together. I know, you know, I've heard some talk of distributed leadership teams, you know, flying more to spend a week together and then go back for three weeks and then another week together. So there could be upside in terms of travel too. Um, and, you know, I think in-person is going to matter uh, how much so we'll, we'll see, but I think we think there's probably some pent up demand there as well. I know I have. And, and I know you guys have historically broken the airport runs that somewhere around 15% of gross bookings. How big is the business component of that? Just, I'm sorry, before you, you, you go to the other part of the question. So we, we don't, I, I can't give you an exact figure there because um, we, you know, there's much business trips that would show up as sort of, we wouldn't have a way to identify that as a business okay. trip, right? If, if you're a rider and you happen to fly into San Francisco and you're not on a business profile with us, we, we don't actually know whether you're a business rider. Um, we've, we've done rough estimates, uh, you know, that somewhere in the neighborhood of 25% of our customers use Uber for business travel, and then up to 50% of our trips are, are, are made up of those people who use us for business. So it's in that order of magnitude, but business travel can also mean within a city and, and so, you know, but airports would be a, a much smaller percent than that. So yeah. it, it remains to be seen a, a little bit. Um, but look, the other side of the coin is we do think there's been parts of the mobility pie that have expanded during COVID. 
So Brazil is an example I often cite in, in discussions. You know, while the business overall is not back to 100%, there's many pockets uh, of cities. So a city like Sao Paulo, which is one of our largest cities globally, there's neighborhoods that are way ahead of where they were pre-COVID. And what we're seeing in those neighborhoods is people move from public transit to Uber because they feel safer. And we also see the time of day demand look very, very different. So, you know, in a bunch of places, non-rush hour commute times are back to above 100%. And these are in places like New York City as well, Rio, Hong Kong, Sydney. And these are new people, new use cases that have come into the category. And we think we're gonna be able to keep those on the other side. So we think overall it's a category expander for us, um, but we'll have to see. And we have a lot in flight to try to keep those users we've gained through COVID. Yeah, yeah, okay. No, that makes, that makes a ton of sense. Um, can we switch topics and maybe step back high level? Um, you guys have often talked about, you know, this ambition of, of, of creating a super, right? And, um, if you go to the Middle East um, and use Kareem, right? They already have sort of a super app, right? They have taxis, they have bikes, they have shopping, et cetera. Maybe speak to where you guys are in that process. Um, yeah, maybe there and then we'll be a little deeper. Sure, I mean, I think we're, you're right about Kareem and it's a great example and one we're close to. And, um, you know, we, we think the super app potential for Uber is pretty great. You know, this is a model that's had a ton of traction in Asia. It's, I think, becoming more of the norm in Latin America, which is a huge market for us. Mm -hmm. um, there is a bunch of benefits to the consumer. So, you know, if you're a customer, you're opening the app to go somewhere. Um, you don't necessarily care whether it's an UberX or maybe you want to upgrade the ride and take the comfort or a black car or maybe there's a bike or a scooter nearby that can get you there quicker and more cheaply, or maybe you actually just use us to get your public transit information, or you land in a new city and you open up the app and you find your rental car through Uber. You know, you're kind of looking to go from A to B and there's a bunch of different ways we can get you there and that's sort of our specialty. And so, you know, even just from a mobility perspective, being able to offer lots of different options and do so in a compelling way that's cross sells and upsells and, and does all that, I think is value added for the consumer. You then add in the ability to use Uber for delivery services. Um, and that's valuable for the customer because there's just a, a level of trust that exists with Uber um, and discovery that, that comes on their end. And for Uber, it's really valuable. You know, two stats that I'm really excited about. I was, I was looking over some of these numbers uh, last week and was surprised at how much this had grown. We're doing nearly 4% of our delivery gross bookings that is originating through the rider app. You know, what people think of as the rider app. 4% um, of delivery GB is coming through that. That's an amazing statistic because you think of how much, how down the, the mobility business is right now. Like our, our user numbers are, are still significantly down. So as those numbers come up, that number percentage on delivery is going to grow. Um, we also disclosed that close to 10% of our Uber Eats first trips came through the, the Uber rider app in Q4. So again, you can see the sort of lead generation discovery potential for the super app. And again, that's going to grow as mobility grows. And, and really, I think we're very early on in our efforts there. So it's powerful. We think it's good for the customer. We think it's good for Uber. You know, over time, I think it brings down our user acquisition costs, which gives us a P&L advantage. So there's a lot of reasons to be excited about it. Yeah. 
Yeah, no, for sure. And then on, if, if you look at where you are from a product standpoint or, or um, the, on the R&D side to kind of make this a reality, um, how, how, much of a, how much a heavy lift is it to do and how, how do you actually get it adopted by, by users? I'm just, tra- I'm just thinking investment side of the equation to get you to where you need to get to. Yes. So as far as the technology to be able to, you know, operate a super app and, uh, you know, present options to users and do so in a way that feels, you know, intuitive and clear, Mm -hmm. that's ready to go. I mean, that's not some big lengthy project that we need to embark on. If you open the rider app today, you'll see a bunch of different tiles for a bunch of different products. Um, and, and so we're sort of already doing that. It needs to continue to evolve and get better and get snappier and all those things we push ourselves on. But that's there. Um, for us, I think that the, the magic is, you know, servicing the right product to the right user at the right moment in their journey. Because, of course, the risk is as you build in lots of different surface, uh, surfaces and services, you, you could potentially confuse the user. Do they know what they're getting? And, you know, and, and you also want to maintain the magic of Uber, which is push a button, get a ride. That's been our, you know, that's been the same story for 10 years. And so if somebody just wants to open the app and get from point A to point, point B, the same ride they take every single morning, it should still be one click to do that. But then how do you show that person food at the right moment or groceries or let them know that they can you know, use their membership program, their subscription program to also get a discount on all these new services. So that's the magic and we're getting better at that. And I think what's exciting for us is we found a way to present all these options without having any negative impact on say mobility. So we can do a lot of this cross selling I just described in the mobility app. And there is, you know, our data science shows there is no downward trade on the mobility business. People aren't getting confused and leaving the app or choosing another option. So that I think is a really powerful thing. And from a marketing standpoint, how do you get it adopted? It seems like at least at this point, it's more organic, right? There is no plan on going all out, trying to run some big marketing campaigns to try to get more people on. Yeah, I think it, it's fairly organic, especially at the moment we're in for the mobility business, right? It's, it's, an odd, it's a bit of an odd one to go with a broad campaign about all these different ways you can move. We're just focused on, you know, making sure people know the platform is safe, that if they need to move, they can move on Uber. Um, as the recovery kicks in, though, I think that's when we get pretty aggressive around educating users on all the different options. And again, I think it's like right moment for the right user. We need to be really segmented in how we do this. Um, you know, we've got car rental pilots going on, I think in four cities around the US right now, you wouldn't go out, do a national campaign on our very early stage car rental. But for a user that lands at an airport in the right city, you know, they need to get hit with a push notification that they can rent their car through Uber at the right moment. And so it's that kind of like, hyper segmented, hyper local type product education, that I think will drive long term value. And, And then you don't have to spend a lot of money to do what I just said either. Right, right. To, to talk to us a little bit about the supply and demand dynamics in the mobility uh, business today and how you're managing that. So um, we know you, you guys said you're starting to spend more on driver acquisition, for example, in anticipation of the, the higher demand this spring. Um, there is obviously a risk there of fueling, again, a promotional environment that we were, back, we were in back a year, year and a half ago. So uh, both on the driver side and on the consumer side, maybe speak to that. 
what you're seeing so far and you know your plans in in you know in the not too distant future say over the next you know uh three to six months sure so um you're you're absolutely right that i think the constraint or the focus for us is going to have to be on growing our driver supply business because what we've seen time and again through the pandemic is the minute cities open up the mobility business comes back almost instantly right even when you even small signals you know restaurant capacity goes from 25% to 35% we start to see that show up in our numbers right away so it's pretty amazing and so when you get into vaccination where people truly feel safe and cities open up for good we think demand is going to come roaring back so for us it's about um, getting drivers back on the, the road so that we can supply that demand, you know, keep ETAs low, keep the service reliable, keep prices low. And, you know, that's gotta be what we deliver on really for the rest of this year and into next year uh, around the world. The good news is that's our core DNA. I mean, as long as Uber's existed, supply growth has had to lead demand growth and, you know, building our supply back is a challenge that I think we're really well set up for. Um, there's all sorts of COVID specific factors limiting supply growth that will start to dissipate, right? So obviously the safety concerns as drivers and societies get vaccinated, those I think will fade. Um, you know, there's been lots of government support through COVID, which is great. Although when, you know, we do know that people drive to earn and to pay the bills and those types of things. So as those programs wind down uh, and if unemployment stays high, which it probably will for some period of time in many places around the world, you know, we'll see more drivers either come back or come into the category. Um, even things you wouldn't think of, government offices close down, it slows down document processes and licenses and all this other stuff. So all those things will dissipate and supply will start to come down. We'll start to invest again. You know, we really cut investment into the, into the crisis as you would expect, but we'll, we'll start to ramp that up as a normal course of business. Um, so as those things dissipate and we really lean in, we think supply, will, driver supply will come back to the platform. Um, the, the good news is, as I said, I think the, the sort of gig economy has permanently expanded here and that does introduce some competition on the supply side of the market. But the best earning gig economy job is being a driver on the Uber platform. And so we've got a natural advantage there. Um, we also just have the capability, you know, we've got uh, teams all over the world. We've got, you know, COEs, we're talking about hands-on stuff, like call every single driver that's left the platform since pre-COVID, do it in a matter of weeks, help them educate them on the safety of the platform, how to get their vaccine, how to get back on the platform. And so we're, we're all in on this and I think we're well set up to do it, but it will be a challenge. There's no doubt about it. Do you think that this has, um, or let me step it, let me ask it this way. How do you think that ultimately impacts the economics to you guys from a take rate standpoint? Um, I think take rate was a down a little bit last quarter, but it sounded like it was mostly due to geographic mix. But based on what you just said, how, how do you see the, you know, the trend in, in, in take rate for the mobility business evolving over, say, the rest of the year? Yes. So uh, gr great question. Um, you know, no bold proclamations from me on take rate as far as where the numbers will move and Balaji can share what we've shared there. Um, we do have different take rates and different geographies by country, by city that varies depending on all sorts of dynamics, local supply demand balance, competitive dynamics, you know, all those different things. So, you know, as different geos 
recover at different rates that that does impact the overall take rate for the business. Um, I think what I'd say is we're, we're very bullish on the profitability trajectory for mobility overall, regardless of ups and downs on take rate because of all the work we've done on cost. Right. So take rates part of the equation, but really ripping out all those strategic co- non-strategic costs as volume comes back, we get a ton of leverage on that. Right. And I think we've done a really good job on that. There's more to do, but as the largest player, you get a lot of scale advantage there. And so we will get a ton of operating leverage as volume comes back on cost. And yes, we want to be thoughtful about doing our best to improve take rate over time, but not at the expense of market leadership long-term, not at the expense of, you know, an imbalanced marketplace, because we think those would be short-term decisions that are not the right, you know, even medium-term call. Um, that said, uh, I don't, any, nothing I'm describing on the supply side of the business, I would view as irrational or promotional behavior. This is just core nuts and bolts, what we have to do to scale volumes back. This is not unexpected. And so we don't think it's anything irrational um, or irregular, frankly, it's, it's just what's needed to, to get the volume back. And I think it's good investment. So we're not, we're not super worried about it, but obviously it's something we manage very tightly week to week. Yeah. Okay. All right. Uh, in the interest of time, let me keep going. Um, on one, one area that honestly is super exciting to us is, is the, uh, the growth in subscribers that you guys put up last quarter. I, I don't know how you, you went from a million to 5 million, um, that was really impressive. Maybe, um, can you just speak to, obviously it's super important. We all understand why, but um, one, how, how are you able to grow the, the, uh, the subscription uh, uh, base this, this, this fast? And any KPIs that you can share in terms of um, the, you know, how these, cohorts of, of, of subscribers are behaving relative to the non-subscribers, either in terms of frequency or average basket size or, or any, any KPIs that you could share? Yeah, so, so I, I, don't, I don't think I can disclose anything new from a numbers perspective versus what's already been disclosed in earnings and you know, what Dara Nelson may have talked about in the last couple of weeks. Um, okay. you know, suffice it to say, we, we are seeing increased cross-platform usage of subscribers. Um, We are seeing increased uh, basket size when when we have uh, members on the platform versus non-members. We do think these trends will continue. Uh, There's no reason to believe that's that's not a sort of structural change in user behavior, which is great. we are continuing to expand our past program. So as you said, we're, we're happy with the 5 million number, but it is nowhere near what we think the end state should be. And we think that end state should come in months, not years. And so um, we're going to really accelerate adoption efforts here because look, anytime you are rolling out a program like this, that is great for your customers and you know does really good things with your own business, though that interest alignment is super powerful. It means we'll just go super hard at it from a marketing and promotion perspective. You'll see it show up in places like the super app and there's all kinds of great ways to get folks to adopt, adopt the membership program. And we really like their behavior once they do that. So, um, you know, it's a major priority for us. We're happy with the growth, but nowhere near satisfied. And uh, we'll, we'll, we'll keep leaning in. The, the good news is um, 
our, our pass offerings you get that much more valuable to customers as the mobility business comes back. Uh, and so, you know, while our sort of each spoke focus, delivery focus pass is doing great today, we have this really powerful ability as a multi, um, you know, multi-business company to offer users benefits on both getting around their city and ordering food or ordering other things for delivery. And it's relevant to almost all our customers. Like everybody moves, everybody eats. That's certainly going to be true in the post-pandemic world. And so the offering, I think, is going to be powerful and differentiated from what any of our monoline competitors can do. And just to be uh, clear, that that's a global number, right? Have you guys broken out or gave a, a U.S. versus international or North America versus rest of the world? I actually don't know that off the top of my head, Balaji. I don't. I don't know if we've done that disclosure, or maybe we can follow up. But I'm not sure. We, yeah, we uh, we haven't. But uh, what we have said is the U.S. Is, is a majority of that five million. Um, you know, a good majority of that is the U.S. Primarily because that's where we've had it for the longest, and and all the international markets we expanded to were in Q4. So you should imagine that that's a small contribution at this point. Right, which is, a, I assume, a big area of growth, particularly in places where you have a super app or a beginning of a super app, because then you kind of, uh, there's a lot of synergy there. All right, um, I guess staying with the international for a second. So Didi has been pretty strong competitor in LATAM, uh, Brazil in particular. Uh, we saw the announcement that they're entering the European rideshare market. Um, how do you guys think about that? Does that provide, or does that cause a potential risk um, that, you know, we're just driving up promotional activity to a level that could hurt margins um, and maybe jeopardize your profitability well for this year. So, so no changes from DD's expansion uh, to our profitability goals, either for the company or for the mobility business overall. Honestly, it's, it's not, I know when announcements like that go, they can sometimes get a lot of attention, but it's not surprising to us, right? This is, this is what we've been expecting. Um, they've been quite clear in their global in, in ambition and the mm-hmm. competition is a good thing. It makes us better. It's better for consumers and for drivers. So, but no surprise. I am a little surprised when the news of expansion generates as, as much waves as, as it does, but um, we compete everywhere, right? I mean, competition is not a new thing to the European market in our largest businesses there. We deal with two to five uh, competitors for the most part, and there many are already quite aggressive. So uh, this is not new or a major change. Three, four years ago, it would have been, but but today that's that's not the case. And in places like London, you know, we're dealing with five plus, including the existing industry, et cetera. So competition is is good. Um, it's not surprising to us. It doesn't change what we think will deliver. And if you look, you know, we've been competing toe to toe with Didi. Uh, outside of China for five plus years at this point. And they're a good competitor, but, you know, our largest markets where they exist, Brazil, Australia, you know, these are places we've maintained, you know, 70 plus category position leadership in Brazil, 80 plus category position leadership in Australia. And we're running nice profitable businesses in those places. So look, they're a good competitor, but they've made us better. And, you know, we're, we're happy to compete. All right. That's super clear. Um, moving to autonomous. Um, so you've made the divestiture of ATG, uh, even though you're obviously still committed with the investment in Aurora. Um, you're, you, again, US competitor talked recently about putting AVs 
on their network starting in 2023. Super curious to know what you think about that time horizon and uh, what does uh, yours look like? Yeah, so we aren't committing to any specific time horizon. Doesn't mean we're not interested, but targets in this space have typically fallen short of reality and we'd rather deliver reality. Mm-hmm. Um, so targets are great. They, they motivate teams and set goals and help you move faster. But, you know, our focus is actually delivering rather than putting some stake in the ground about a future date. Um, we, we're, you know, very excited about the partnership with Aurora you know, two talented teams together. We obviously have a very deep invested interest in this space and knowledge of the space. And, you know, we think we are the platform of choice to put EVs into market and all our expertise around bringing consumer demand for mobility and marketplace management and managing the customer experience. I think we've built those capabilities for years. We have thousands of fleet partners today, not operating autonomous vehicles, operating traditional vehicles. Um, but we are the place to put your vehicle, to drive utilization, make money on that vehicle. And we think that'll be true with other modes of transportation going forward. So um, it's an interesting space. We think it's a great thing overall for, for the world. We, it's going to take some time to get there. And I think we're still really well positioned as the platform of choice. And so we'll work with Aurora. We'll work with other partners where it makes sense. And we'll certainly look at technology as it evolves. Um, but we, we feel pretty good about our positioning here. And just to clear uh, the, the clear out the, the question that we often get around the business model, um, do you guys have any interest in operating your own fleet or, or is the idea that you'd be a customer acquisition relationship layer on top of third-party fleet operator? I think it's, it's unlikely we would want to operate our own fleets. We, we traditionally don't want to be in the capital intensive okay. part of the value chain and that's not our core capability. Never say never, because of course we've got to do what it takes to win, but um, I don't think it's likely we'll go down that path. Mm-hmm. We are, as you say, bringing hundreds of millions of eyeballs every week to an app to get from point A to point B. That's going to be a massive uh, point of entry for AVs and also just a value add. We manage the marketplace. We can do the, you know, complement traditional supply with AV supply manage the transaction and the trip, you know, all of these are our capabilities. Um, so we, we should play where we have an advantage. And also, in, in, you know, we're not in the business of trying to get into these very heavy capital intensive businesses. Yep, yep, no, I suspected you were gonna say that. All right, um, last few minutes we have, I just wanna hit the, the regulatory uh, environment. So can you speak to the recent UK Supreme Court ruling on the employment status of drivers? Uh, no, it was backward looking, limited to 140, I think, or so drivers. Is there any concern of knock-on effects going forward on the larger driver base in the UK and even other geos? So look, I, you, you heard me speak earlier about um, you know, our journey and, and how we've evolved as a company and you know, how we've been able to navigate changing Regulatory Regulatory environment, both on the core business, but also on the labor side. Prop 22 is a big, big turning point. So I fully expect overall that we're going to continue to make progress and developing the future of work and, you know, rolling out models that provide flexibility and independence, which is universally what drivers tell us they want. They don't want to be traditional employees. 
they they they're here for the flexibility they're here for the independence mm -hmm. they often work on multiple apps they often work to supplement other sources of income and that's true and that's what they want and that's why we won on prop 22 it's because it's what drivers want i think it's why over time we'll be able to work with governments around the world to provide flexibility and independence while also giving you know some additional safety net and benefits and the types of things that were included in Prop 22. So that's the overall story. With the UK specifically, as you say, backward looking, limited to a, a um, small set of, of drivers overall, we're still evaluating our sort of go, go forward approach there. I do think it's worth noting that was the drivers there were classified as workers, which is this category between traditional employees and independent contractor which actually in many ways looks like what we're advocating for in terms of IC plus and, you know, what the prop 22 model is overall flexibility, ability to turn on and off the app, um, but also an economic model that works for platforms. So we do think there's a path forward there um, and we'll navigate it the way we've navigated California and other challenges along the way. Um, it's still early days. And, and so, you know, and we want to, we want to, take an approach that is what drivers want. So that'll be at the forefront of, of our actions going forward. And on, on Prop 22, just um, one quick clarification. So your competitor seems to be indicating that they've decided to eat much or absorb much of the that price increase. I think you guys, at least if I remember correctly, Nelson on the last earnings call, I think said you're absorbing some, you're passing on some to the to the to the end consumer. Is there a difference there? Could that be a a, a competitive disadvantage if ultimately you were proven to be a little more expensive, or is that not not the case? So it, just just to clarify, I think you know the competitor you're referencing that has said we're going to eat the cost or whatever is on the delivery side. Um, on the mobility side, I, I believe our primary competitor has actually passed through the cost to consumers as we have as well. So we don't think there's any relative disadvantage there and nothing that we're seeing in California suggests that that pass through, which is relatively small amount, has, has had an impact on demand or our positioning in the market or anything like that. So for mobility, we feel good. On the delivery side, you know, folks are going to manage the business the way they manage the business. Our sense is that they pass through cost, cost increases nationwide over the last little while. And so maybe not specific to California, but overall, we do think there's some clawback there, um, which, you know, there's different approaches here, but we don't think we're at any disadvantage uh, overall in California. And again, we think Prop 22 is a great outcome for, for drivers and for the industry. All right. So um, thanks for that clarification. That's actually, I didn't know that. So last question and just to close out. Um, so just as you look at the the ride sharing business uh, for you guys over the next, I don't know, three to five years and the just opportunities around it. What really excites you the most today? So we have, I, I think the, for us, the vision for mobility is to power every journey that happens in the city. And so today I think people still, even within the mobility space, think of Uber as Primarily UberX, you know, I get a ride from point A to point B. We've got a bunch of business users who use some of our premium products. And then we've got some traction with a bunch of, you know, subcomponents of the business, taxis in certain markets and two and three wheelers and others. But I, I really think the 
you know, what's going to power long-term growth on this platform is people switching to a mindset of every time I leave the house, I use Uber and a bunch of the products we've got in the pipeline are going to drive that behavior. They're going to expand the TAM. They're going to expand the pie. They're going to bring more people in who use Uber for their daily needs. I talked to some of the things we're seeing through COVID on that front, you know, We've got some really interesting uh, high-capacity vehicle experiments going in three, four markets that we're starting to expand and selling both um, to customers, but also to businesses, um, which is super powerful. Uh, you know, that's talk we're talking about not bringing down the cost of a ride like 5% or 10%, but 50, 60, 70%, which fundamentally changes the pie. Um, you know, we've got tremendous growth on our hailables portfolio. So, um, motorcycles, three-wheelers, taxis. You know, these are businesses that are growing year over year through COVID, given our expansion. And it's, it's this huge portion of the mobility ecosystem that traditionally we've shied away from playing in, but now we're becoming sort of the, the software that powers that part of the industry as well. We've, we're seeing really great traction in our transit business. Again, it's early days, but working with agencies, helping them manage costs, manage their networks, almost, uh, you know, starting to do some SaaS pilots where we're actually selling them software to help them manage their own portfolio of cars, which is super interesting business. Um, and the list goes on and on and on. I mean, if you, if you go at the car rental industry and think about how we can help that business modernize, that is a really tough customer experience for anyone that's done it in the last couple of years. Um, such an opportunity to like Uberize that and make it smooth, pick up and drop off experience. Um, getting to and from where you need to get your car, maybe take some real estate out of the space long-term, which helps them bring the cost structures down. So I, I could go again down vertical after vertical where I think we're going to have a chance to do what we did with this core, you know, for hire point-to-point -point transportation. And the technology we're building is excellent. Our ability to sell through on our B2B side is scaling really, really quickly. So Dara often talks about, we've got this powerful mobility distribution We've got these eyeballs, hundreds of millions of eyeballs, and we've got hundreds of thousands of businesses using it. We build these innovations and we can sell them. So I know there's a lot there, but I, I'm excited about a lot here. And I think it's going to be an amazing sort of five to 10 years of growth from the seeds we're planting today. That's true. Super exciting. Okay. That is all the time we have. So Andrew McDonald, thank you so much for this. It was far wide reaching, uh, uh, conversation and then uh, I really enjoyed it. Balaji, thank you so much as well for uh, help uh, set up and uh, thank you guys. Thank you everybody for, for attending as well. And hopefully next year we'll, we'll meet in person and who knows, we'll, we'll, uh, we'll use Uber to get there. Definitely. Definitely. Awesome. Well, great chatting you. So thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks everybody. Cheers. Be safe.